Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. That's right. If you're poking in here, popping in for the first time, you just walked into Revelation. Lucky you. Revelation chapter 8. So you're going to find out what kind of crazy we are uh, because Revelation is a tricky book and there are many different views. We've been working our way through it systematically. We're basically spending most of the year in Revelation with, a, with an attempt to, to really narrow down the theme of the book which is the victory of Christ and the church over the devil in the world and what this means for us as we continue to live lives through days of tribulation, which we are in now. So Revelation chapter eight, verses one through five. And let me just get this out of the way because I know you'll be distracted otherwise. Yes, I have a yellow star on my leg. I don't normally wear yellow stars on my leg, but my daughter Madeline stuck it on me. I guess because it's her 13th birthday today. I don't know why I got the star, but she's putting stars on people just Go with it if she puts a star on you. I don't know what's going on. Thank you, Maddie. All right, Revelation chapter eight, starting in verse one. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, even revelation, because we know that though it may read scary or it may seem confusing, Lord, we know that you have given us your word to understand you, to know you, and to know your ways. And in fact, Lord, we believe that you have given us this book to comfort us in these days. So we pray, Lord, that you would teach us and change us, that your spirit would sanctify us through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the book of Revelation, and this chapter in particular, uh, is written to a people who were dealing with fear. And that's not just the first century readers here. That would actually apply to all of us because all of us, in one way or another, have to deal with fear or anxiety or dread or despair because of the fallen, broken world that we live in. Now, some people react differently to fear, right? Some people, you've heard of the fight or flight uh, sort of uh, uh, response, right? So when there's something fearful, when there's something dramatic, some sort of crisis happening, uh, well, some people get aggressive. They are afraid, and so their response is to move towards it, maybe to solve the problem or maybe to engage, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad. Other people run. And by the way, when you're afraid, running is oftentimes very good. It's oftentimes safer and gets you out of troubles. Running isn't bad. Flee is oftentimes good but there's actually a third one which is freezing some people they get caught up in the fear in the moment and they don't know what to do they don't fight they don't fly they freeze they do nothing it's almost as if they become totally passive it's good to know what you do in those situations or at least what you tend toward because the fears that we experience in this world do tend to to move us in negative ways. Like in this world, there is the, the weight of sin, your sin and the sin of others. There's the weight of corruption in the world, that the world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, so there, 
There are disasters and there are cancers and there are social upheavals. There is wickedness out there and then circumstances that just don't, don't work for our good but work to tear down our flourishing. And when we sense the weight of our sin or a corrupt world, fear oftentimes discourages us or depresses us or immobilizes us. Sometimes it moves us to respond in anger and to lash out. The cure for our fears is the faithfulness of God. And if there's one thing that I want us to grasp from this message, the the summary of the whole sermon today is simply that, that God's faithfulness calms our fears. God's faithfulness calms your fears. So we're going to see this in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, but to understand chapter 8, 1 through 5, we've got to back up a little bit and give ourselves some context. So if we go all the way back, we see that John is now having a vision. Revelation is made up of several visions. And in this one vision, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, and in the right hand of God, who is only described in colors from gemstones, uh, in his right hand is a scroll, and the scroll has seven seals on it. And the scroll needs to be opened, but there's nobody in heaven or on earth who is worthy to open the scrolls. So John's despairing. People are freaking out in the vision. But then suddenly John sees a lamb as though he had been slain, but is alive. And he knows, ah, there's Jesus. And it's obvious, it's clear, there is singing. This is the one, the only one who is worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll. Only he is worthy. And the reason this is so important is because the unfolding of this scroll, the breaking of the seals, and the revealing of the contents of the scroll is a revelation of the unfolding plan of God throughout all of our days, the unfolding plan of God of deliverance, the deliverance of God's people, and damnation, the judgment of the devil in the world. It's this unfolding plan. And so as these seals are broken, we see what's happening during this whole church age. And so the first four seals are broken one at a time, but we tend to group them together because what we have here are the four horsemen, right? And some people talk about the four horsemen as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as if they're a future reality, but they're not a future reality. They are a present reality. When these seals are broken, the four horsemen are released onto the earth and the four horsemen represent evil and war and famine and death. Sin has come into the world and with them all kinds of disaster, including God's judgment. Evil war, famine, and death wreaking havoc on everyone, but especially on the people of God because in their case, the devil and the world will leverage these things to bring pressure against us because of our faith. Then there's a fifth seal that is opened. Jesus opens the fifth seal and there we have the cry of the martyrs. That are, these are, are, are the people of God, the followers of Christ who have been beheaded, tortured, murdered for their faith. They would not recant. They would not renounce Christ. Instead, they suffered all the way to the end. They died. And those who had died are in paradise with God. They're in, they're in the throne room with him and they are crying out from under this altar of incense. And they're, they're, they're crying out, asking, Lord, when will you vindicate us? When will you finally bring an end to the oppression and persecution of your people by wicked and evil men? When will you do this? And God's answer is, not yet. Be patient because I will, but I'll do it in my time. First, 
we need to gather all of those who were appointed to die as martyrs first. In other words, not enough have been martyred. In God's plan, there is a number. And once we reach that number, then judgment will finally begin and the people of God will be finally vindicated. And then there is the sixth seal that's broken. And the sixth seal shows us the collapse of creation in on itself as God begins final judgment. So now we are talking about the end when God brings final judgment upon the world for its rebellion, for its wickedness. But in the midst of this sixth seal being broken and the plan being unfolded, the book of Revelation sort of takes a detour. There's an interlude of sorts. And during this time, right, there's almost like a pause in, in this vision, like pause. And then we learn that, well, listen, but before any of this would even happen, the elect of God or the people of God, the church, is sealed on their foreheads. They're given the seal of God and this is a sign of their protection. They belong to, get to him and they will be preserved all the way to the end. Even if they die for their faith, they don't perish, but they persevere. They, pres they are preserved all the way to the end in their faith. So God promises preservation and protection to his people throughout this age when evil war, famine, and death are wreaking havoc. And now we're back. There was that interlude, we come back, and now it's the seventh and final seal. And in this seventh seal, when it's broken, there is silence. It gets quiet. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, this is a short period of time in Revelation. You have long periods of time, 1,000 years, or you have big numbers, 144,000. Sometimes you have small numbers here, 30 minutes, not very long. There's silence. Now, for a lot of us, silence is a good thing, unless it's awkward silence. That's usually not good. Uh, but we like, I think of, to me, I think silence, I think, oh, that's nice. No barking dogs. We had a crazy guy running around my neighborhood a couple nights ago yelling about like he's going to, I'm going to kill your dog and I'm going to blow up your house. He's like, really kind of freaky. And uh, it reminded me of Jim Fowler's neighborhood because like, that sort of stuff usually happens there. But, uh, but uh, I, I'm, in, I'm in my neighborhood and I hear all this like that's like noise, cast barking dogs, loudness, loud talking. I like silence and solitude, peace and quiet. Leave me alone. Put me in some sort of chamber where it's night. I love silence. Silence is a gift in many ways, but this, this is not a peaceful silence. This is the silence of judgment. In fact, if you look at the concept of silence in the Old Testament and in a lot of Jewish literature outside of the, the Bible, but if you look at the Old Testament on silence, frequently it's associated with judgment, with God's judgment of the wicked even in their death let me give you a couple of examples so in psalm 115 uh, verse 17 the dead do not praise the lord nor do any who go down into silence and it's not just that death is silence it's this absolute utter silence that comes from god in the context of judgment in psalm 31 verse 17 we read something very similar oh lord let me not be put to shame for i call upon you let the wicked be put to shame let them go silently to sheol let them go to the grave, not just where they don't have a voice, but where there is no voice. That is where there is no hope. This is the silence 
that is a form of judgment that comes upon the world. Two verses in particular make this really plain, okay? And that is uh, Habakkuk chapter two and Zechariah chapter two. So you can remember it that way. Habakkuk chapter two, verse 20, just listen. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In context, this is the promise that judgment is coming. God's judgment is going to be unleashed. So there will be first absolute silence. And then again, uh, not just in, in Habakkuk, but also in Zechariah chapter two. Verse 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling, from his temple. Silence in this context is the beginning of the act of judgment. In other words, when the seventh seal is broken and the rest of that scroll is laid open, seven and six are working together to give us this continued and final picture of God's Final judgment, the day of the Lord. And then, in the midst of all of this, is another kind of interruption. This is not how I would write, this is not how I would write a letter or a vision. I would like things to be very linear, very progressive, very clear, beginning, end. Like, I don't like all these interruptions. It's confusing to me. But here we have sort of like a, uh, almost like a commercial for what's going to happen after this vision. Because in verse two, it says, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets who were given to them and then gone. We don't hear from them again until we finish up this vision. Then we get the seven trumpets. So we had seven seals. Now we're gonna have another vision with seven trumpets, but first they're teased here. We're aware and they're in our minds. And then we get back to this seventh seal being unfurled. Now, I've already said on the front end, what I want us to take away from this is that God's faithfulness is what calms our fears in this world and in this life. And I want us to see this in two ways. Number one, God is faithful to hear his people when we pray. And number two, God is faithful to vindicate his people when they are persecuted or harmed. All right, so first, God is faithful to hear his people and he hears his people, not because there's silence. Some people want to draw that analogy, but that silence is more of an act of judgment as God brings his wrath to bear on a world that is against him and his people. But he hears us because of the censor, at least in the vision here. It says in verse three, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. God is faithful to hear us when we pray and this is why. There is this angel who's at the altar. Now, what, what altar is this? This is the altar where that was mentioned in chapter six, like verse 19, I think, where um, the, the people of God are crying out. The people that have been martyred are crying out, praying, lifting up their, their request to God for vindication. It's coming from the altar of incense that's in the tabernacle, in the temple, where the incense represented the prayers of God's people wafting up to heaven. But here we have an angel who is now at that very altar and he's got a golden censer. 
C-E-N-S-E-R, censor. Who here has a lot of experience in Roman Catholic churches? Anybody? Roman Catholic? First service, like half of y'all. Nobody? All right, so you, you might be unfamiliar. In Roman Catholic churches, they have what I affectionately call bells and smells. I mean that kindly. I don't mean that as a dig. They have lots of pomp and circumstance. A lot of the elements that are incorporated into their corporate worship um, are derived from Old Testament worship. And so there would be ringing of bells and various things, but they also have incense and they have these censers. So you'll see a priest, maybe you've seen it in movies if you haven't been to a Catholic church, where there's one of the priests walking down the aisle and he has a nice long chain. It looks like a weapon from the medieval days. Uh, he's got a long chain and this metal contraption on the end, that's the censer. It holds incense on it and it diffuses the incense through the room as he walks down the aisle, right? You guys have seen that sort of a thing? That's what a censer is. It's, a, it's an incense diffuser that was uh, used in the temple to signify the, the rising of the prayers to God. Now, here the angel has this censer and the way it's put, it puts a pretty fine point on how this relates to prayer. It says that the incense is coupled with the prayers so that they rise up to God. They are together a pleasing aroma. It's the grace of of incense that purifies our prayers. Incense here is a picture. It's a vision. But the point here is that our prayers in and of themselves would not be very pleasing to God, would they? And I think a lot of us know this, that like my prayers are too short, half-believed, oftentimes interrupted with distractions and all kinds of things. Like I... If I'm honest, like my, when I look at my prayers, I oftentimes think like there's not much there. And if you begin to struggle with your own prayers and you begin to focus on your prayers and you begin to see all the ways in which they're, they're kind of weak and pathetic, you might be tempted to not pray at all. Why would I pray? Why would God hear this? It's, I know that he can hear it, but why would he want to? I'm such a whiny, half-believing baby who isn't even really communing with God half the time. But the picture and the truth is that God actually delights in our prayers and not because they're perfect, but because they've been purified by his grace. They are offered up with this incense. You see, our imperfect prayers can lead to a lack of assurance where we figure why bother. But when you begin to understand that, no, God receives my prayers as incense, as something delightful, that, something that he actually enjoys. It's motive for us to pray more, even though on, when we look at what we're offering, it's not so great on its own. This is why in Psalm 141, Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2, listen to what David says about praying. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call on you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, as the lifting up and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Let my prayer be counted as incense. It's not. Our prayers are kind of stinky sometimes, if we're honest. But they're coupled with the grace of God. They're coupled with the reality of the gospel. 
And that spiritual incense purifies and perfumes and perfects our prayers so that when they reach the ears of God, he actually delights in them. He enjoys them. He finds them to be aromatic. They smell good. And I need that kind of encouragement, particularly when I'm facing fear and anxiety and dread in a world when I need to be praying and I'm starting to wonder, can, is God even going to hear me? Absolutely, he hears me. Not because I pray so good, but because God's grace in Christ and in the gospel perfects it all. So what happens? My, my head is lifted. My heart is filled. My voice is raised up. And to, be, to put a finer point on it, how is it that, that this incense perfects and perfumes our prayers? It is through Jesus and it is through his active righteousness as well as his, as his ongoing intercession. So one of the things that we are convinced about as Christians is that Jesus is the substitute for sinners. Christ died for us. We say that, we preach that, but we also affirm that Christ lived for us. Before he died for us and took our punishment and our guilt and our shame, he lived for us. So whereas in his death, he takes our shame and guilt and punishment in his life, he makes up for the deficit of all of our unrighteousness by fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf. In other words, where we break all 10 commandments, he kept all 10 commandments and he did that for us so that the exchange would be in his death, we give him our sins and in his life, he gives us his righteousness. This counts towards prayer. Our feeble, faltering prayer lives, which never fully measure up to the standard that God has for us, are acceptable and beautiful to God. Why? Because Christ's prayer life is credited to our account. So you just think about John 17, his high priestly prayer, for example, where he is praying and praising the Father and submitting himself to the will of the Father. He's praying for himself. He's praying for his brothers and sisters. He's praying for the elect, those that the Father had given him, he says. He's praying perfectly, without doubt. And he does that for us. So when we pray, his righteousness is credited to us so our prayers are perfected. But it's not just what he did, it's what Jesus continues to do because he continues to intercede for us today. In other words, he prays for us and with us. The intercession of Christ is an important doctrine that we've covered before, but let me just remind us from Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, there is no condemnation for us because the only one who can condemn is fully appeased. Jesus died for us. He rose for us. He ascended into heaven. He sits enthroned. And while there, he prays for us. He is our constant advocate and intercessor. So our prayers are perfected by his active righteousness when he prayed during his earthly ministry and they are purified by his ongoing intercessory work as we pray to the Father ourselves. All of this means that God is faithful to hear his people when we pray. And God's faithfulness calms our fears. It gives us a sense of peace in a world that is chaotic. 
But the second principle is that God is faithful not only to hear us, but also to vindicate us, to vindicate his people as they are persecuted. Listen to verse five, because this takes a weird turn. It's sort of weird. I mean, for, in my reading, especially if I kind of block out everything that I know or my preconceived ideas, it's an unexpected turn because it's so beautiful. The angel has the, the censer and he fills it with incense. And as the prayers are going up, the incense is going up. And it's this beautiful offering up to the Lord. But then in verse five, it says, the angel then took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That seems, <laughs> seems dark. It was this beautiful thing and now it's used as, as praise and, 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 and an appeal to God for help and now it's, why is it being cast to the earth? It actually makes sense because what's happening here is it's a demonstration that God is faithful to vindicate his people. Remember the seventh seal is the continuation of the unfolding of God's judgment in the end. Seal six and seven work together to show us this great day of the Lord. See, what are the prayers that are being offered coupled with that incense that God is receiving? When will you vindicate us? When will you make it right? When will we stop seeing evil win and we'll start seeing righteousness succeed and triumph? When will we see the church triumphant in glory instead of being punked by the devil day after day? Lord, when? And the Lord says, well, now, with the seventh seal, with the end, as he told the martyrs before, listen, it's not time yet, but you gotta trust my timing. I will bring about the resolution that you need. I will vindicate you. Yes, Christ will be victorious over the world, over the devil, but in due time. And this is the beginning of the end. The great day of the Lord when creation begins to collapse and all are held accountable for their deeds. God responds with judgment as his people have been praying for deliverance. The corrupt world that champions evil is going to come to an end. His faithfulness to vindicate us in the future calms us today. God is faithful to defend us, but in his time and in his way. And one of the things that hopefully you will learn as you grow older in the faith, and many of you have already learned it and are teaching me this, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more time you spend in his word, the more you become convinced that God's way and timing is better than ours. Now my way and timing, I, I, I like it better than the Lord's if I'm just being honest, <laughs> kind of like, I like my, I want it now, I want it my way, and I want to avoid certain things, right? I, but in faith, I have to submit myself and recognize that my intuition and my impulses are incorrect. God knows what is best for him and for me and for the world. And we gotta learn to trust him in this. His time, his way is best every time and in every way. And it's God's faithfulness that assures us that he hears us when we pray and that he will vindicate us in the end that can calm us today. And y'all need calming because you are afraid. I know some people are like, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anything. And I'm one of those guys. I'm not afraid of it. Okay, I'm afraid of spiders. You guys know that. 
irrationally terrified of spiders. I can't function, cannot deal. Yes, my wife has to kill spiders in our house or get them out. I will not, I don't, I'm not even joking, I'm not playing. Um, and don't throw a spider at me, I, I will quit. I'll leave the church, I'll move to a different state, don't play. I'm afraid of spiders, but I'm not afraid of like situations or people like I'm genuinely, like I feel like I'm not afraid of stuff. We're all afraid of various things. It manifests itself in different ways. It doesn't mean that you're quaking in your boots, you know, and you're hiding in the corner. Fear oftentimes manifests itself in a kind of anxiety or a kind of depression, a kind of immobilization where you just don't know what to do, don't want to work, don't, you kind of give up. There is a kind of fear that rests upon the shoulders of God's people when we are experiencing the weight of a broken world, our own sin, sins of the world, or even persecution from the devil, that weight becomes unbearable if we are not dependent upon the grace of God and derive our assurance from his faithfulness. God is faithful. I want you to get this. And if you're like me, that might be a little bit of a weird saying because when I used to hear people say like, God is, he'll be faithful, he's faithful. And I would always think like, God doesn't owe me anything. How, why would God be faithful to me? Like if I get married and I got married, awesome. Uh, my wife is faithful to me. She owes me that because I'm her husband. I'm faithful to her. I owe her that. Like that's, you're, you owe it, right? You're faithful. You're faithful to your promises, your covenants. And that's what began to help me to understand, oh, God's faithfulness to us is not because he owes us. He's faithful to us because he's faithful to himself. He's faithful to his word and to the promises that he has made to us. He doesn't go back on his words. So in like Psalm uh, 1, uh, 135 verse uh, 14, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. In the midst of trial and tribulation, struggle and defeat, even death, we have this promise. God will vindicate us. He will not abandon us. We will ultimately be victors and we are more than conquerors through Christ. Or Psalm 34, listen to this one. Psalm 34, verses 21 and 22. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So they were going back to the end. Okay, God's gonna get it right. He's going to make it right. And this actually encourages me. It lifts my head. You see, your fear will either make you passive and pliable where you're giving up or it'll make you so angry so hostile if you aren't depending on the Lord and finding peace and, and a sense of calmness in his future justice that you become the agro activist online that nobody likes. You ever wonder why so many Christians are so angry? We want to blame COVID or governmental mismanagement or, or people not responding well or respect. Like we all, people are super agro and angry as believers and they're more vocal about what's going on in our culture right now in small measure than they are anything else that has eternal significance. Sometimes on both sides of these issues, we are so triggered and so amped, I can't help but see it as a symptom of you being afraid and not finding peace in the grace of Christ. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't care. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak up. But we should be a people who walk in peace. 
whose fears are actually calmed by the promise of God's faithfulness. Let me read one last passage. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Here, the apostle says, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you, guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. God's faithfulness does calm our fears, but we have to lay hold of that by faith. He hears your prayers and he delights in them. They're not a nuisance, they're not a bother. He's pumped. It's not like when you get the phone call at 9.30. Who calls at 9.30? Nobody's supposed to call at 9.30. You get annoyed. God hears your prayers and delights in them because they are perfumed with his own grace. They are perfected. He delights in them. He hears you and he responds and he will vindicate you. But understand this, that this day of judgment that we're looking at and even the day of judgment that we call for, for a vindication and for an end to evil, All of that will only happen and we should only want that day to come after every opportunity has been given to even the worst of sinners to experience the grace of Jesus Christ. Because the worst of them are no worse than any of you. Yeah, there are days when I'm just calling for hellfire. I want God to bring the pain. I want God to bring an end to the madness and that's that's good. Judgment and justice are good things, but you know what's even more glorious is if before judgment they experience justification. Because our God can be both just and the justifier of everyone who has faith in Christ. Now the seventh seal wraps up the scroll that shows us God has an unfolding plan All of the bad, the death, the evil, all of that is unfolding according to a plan that God has put in place that will ultimately result in your deliverance and the destruction of all evil. That's why we can breathe, because we can trust our God who calms our hearts as we seek him in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to teach us today as we pray, as we sing together, as we worship, as we go about all the things you give us to do. Lord, we want to be a people who are constantly growing in our understanding of you, not to be more intellectually robust, but to be a people who look more like you. We want to be more like you. We want your image to be restored in us so that Christ shines brightly in us. Lord, we want to be true ambassadors whom you've entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. We pray, Lord, that that would be on our lips, that the message of Christ's death would be what we are known for above all else, and that in these days, when there are so many questions and frustrations that are legit, that you would calm our hearts and guard our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.